This is the Reset MD podcast. We welcome you to join in on our conversations with fellow physicians. Many of us in medicine reach a point in our careers where we want to make a change, hit a reset button. Wouldn't it be nice to have some guidance from colleagues who'd been there too and have pearls of wisdom to share? These well-being conversations will cover a range of topics, thriving in medicine, physician health, burnout prevention, work-life integration, practice optimization, advocacy, and support. And we'll just have some fun doing it. Listen in and start your reset. Hi, welcome to the Reset MD podcast. I'm Dr. Marion McCrary, one of the co-creators of the podcast, and I'm really excited today to have a conversation with one of my friends here. I want to introduce you to Dr. Teresa War Kirchgraber. She is an internist and professor of medicine at the Augusta University, University of Georgia Medical Partnership in Athens, Georgia, and she is the president of the American Medical Women's Association. Actually, I think she may be the only person who's done this twice, uh, and she just started her second uh, year as president in earlier in 2022. And we want to talk a little bit today about her story, what's worked for her, and her passion uh, in advocacy and equity in medicine and healthcare. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And actually, I'm not the first person who's reprised their role as president. It did happen once before. But it's not, not the usual case. So thank you. I, I, I should have known my history <laughs> before I That's said That's all right. That's all right. And I, you know, how about, just call me Teresa. That would be great. That would be perfect. Well, our listeners don't know that we actually have spent a lot of time together. We've become friends over this year uh, out of some serendipity of finding out that we actually live part of the time in the same neighborhood. So it's been really fun to get to know you. And I've heard some of your stories, a little bit about kind of what got you to where you are now. But as we start, I'd love to, for you to tell our listeners a little bit about you, and then we'll, we'll move into some of the things that support you in the work that you do now. Sure. Well, thank you. Uh, I think, you know, nobody really feels like their story is all that unique or special, but I tell folks that part of the reason why I'm a physician is because I twirled a baton. Okay. So you might say, what's that relationship? So I'm one of eight children. I grew up in Southern California. I'm a first-generation college student and a first-generation physician, um, but had really no plans of what to do with the rest of my life. I'm not one of those folks who always knew they were going to be a doctor, um, but I, we were very active as kids, being involved in as many different things as we possibly could be, and the twirling was one of them because, you know, before Title IX, there were certain things that were for girls and certain things that were for boys, and twirling a baton was for girls. And you know, so my mother got us involved in as many things as possible. And twirling a baton, I would participate in competitions and stuff. But I would also notice that when I sat down on Saturday afternoons to watch Notre Dame football with my dad, who was a big, big fan, the halftime shows would be shown and there was always a baton twirler. And so I thought, I would like to go to college so that I could be on TV and twirl baton. 
that was really my impetus to consider going to college. And once I kind of got that thought in mind, then it was kind of like no hold, no hold bars. I, I never actually did twirl in college, but it got me on that path and helped me to kind of think of how, if, if that's what I want to do is go to college, how am I going to do that? And part of it was working and saving money and you know, working at McDonald's and saving money and, and realizing that being an associate or assistant manager at McDonald's was nice and great, but it's not a lifetime career. So that was also extraordinarily good. And I only went, I only applied to one college because it's the one that I could afford and being able to pay my own way in college and working part-time and stuff. It gave me a lot of, well, a lot of great, um, I guess, personal pride. But in school, I wasn't quite sure what to do. I knew that I liked different things. I had participated in a program with AHEC, Area Health Education Centers, uh, a regional opportunities program that allowed high school students to learn different types of trades, specifically being a CNA or a certified nurse's aide. So having that exposure of working in the hospital didn't, it, again, it didn't tell me be a physician. It just told me, oh, you know, I kind of don't mind sick people. Ah, so maybe that would be an option. And then eventually going to college and trying a variety of different things, recognizing that I kind of like the science, I decided to do nursing. But after, after getting into the nursing program, I was working in a hospital, learning, just trying to do something uh, volunteer-wise and you know, getting paid to do the admissions clerk and decided, um, was talking about the nursing program. And one of the nurses there who was working with me, Steve Wasserman, he was planning on leaving and going to be a chiropractor. And so that whole summer before I was supposed to start the nursing program, he kept telling me, well, why don't you go to med medical school? And I thought, well, no, no, I don't know anybody that goes to medical school. I mean, the rate is getting in is 10 to one in California. Oh my gosh, I'm not smart enough. And that whole summer, he just beat on me. Every time a doctor came by, he was like, look, you're smarter than he is. Oh, look, you could do that. Oh, look, it was really because of Steve who beat on me that whole summer and said, why not? Why not? Why not? And at the end of the summer, I said, why not? And decided to switch my major and, and go forth. So I give a lot of credit to those people in your life who push you, who cajole you, who show you that there's a way, even when you self-doubt. Like they can see your potential before you can. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I love and that. And we need story. them. <laughs> We definitely need them. Um, you know, we, there's, there's this self-confidence that, that grows, but it's got to start somewhere. And mm -hmm. before we can kind of believe in ourselves, we need other people to believe in us and to support us and help us along the way. And it, and it certainly comes in unusual places. It wasn't my college professor. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't even the physicians that I was working with when I was there. It was more you know, somebody else who saw something extra, who pushed me away, so, I mean, pushed me along. So that was really, that was really impactful. And, and, I, and I would tell listeners to look outside yourself and look outside the traditional recommendations for mentoring, um, because that support comes in so many different aspects. You know, when I got to college and decided, you know, when I decided to switch to, to be a chemistry major and apply to medical school, I realized I couldn't do it 
with the same, in the same way that I've been doing my first three years, I needed to stop working. I needed to get more loans. I needed to find stuff. And that's when I first became involved with an organization on campus called Chicanos for Community Medicine. It was a group of folks that were very similar to myself who were uh, mostly of Hispanic background from Southern California, putting themselves through school. Most were first generation uh, college students and first generation thinking about going into medicine or dentistry. And so having that kind of collaborative group that shared ideas and suggestions and in some cases, we borrowed clothes from each other because we'd be going to interviews in the Northeast and not have appropriate coats or boots. So it was, it was really useful to have that kind of you know, direct uh, assistance. And having that community and, and, we're, and I love how we're talking about this, you know, thinking about how do you become a doctor? So I've interviewed a lot of folks about their experience once they've become doctors, but we really haven't had the opportunity to, to dig into, you know, what that might be like. And your story is different than my story than it's different than another person's story. But really knowing that having those people that support you, whether it's that community of other students who you're borrowing the winter coat from, or whether it's the uh, mentor who really sees that potential in you and is pushing you to, to find that in yourself. Mm-hmm. And, and we all come to it in different ways. Oh, absolutely. And I'm sure that every person has a slightly different bent on how they kind of came to have an understanding. And, you know, in so many ways too, I never gave it enough credit. I never gave enough credit to the taxpayers of California until I, I went back for some award ceremony and, and really understood that because of the way the California system was set up, because it was a Cal State system that I could afford to pay for on my own, it allowed me that opportunity to, at my third year of college, change majors, switch directions, and take an additional three years if I had been in an institution where I was paying 10, 15, $20,000 a year for an education, I wouldn't have been able to do that. But because of the way they set that up, because the, because the California taxpayers provide that capacity for people to go to college with minimal um, cost, that allowed me the opportunity to really to make that jump. And I think few, so few of us really recognize what an impact that can that can make. Um, so in my acceptance speech for the award, I certainly made a shout out to my California taxpayers because they made a big difference in my life. For all our California listeners, I'm, I'm sure they appreciate that. <laughs> and I think North Carolina is very similar. I think with uh, both uh, states have very robust uh, state supported schools and um, more medical schools in California than North Carolina, but still there's a lot of support to help the physicians who go through, through those in their training. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, as I, we talked at the beginning about your role in AMWA, and I was really struck when I learned more about that, that there's a huge part of the membership that are pre-medical students that are medical Mm -hmm. students and residents in addition to folks who finish their training. And so I think that's unique in that it really helps support people, as you were saying, with this community of of like-minded people who are interested in the same things. 
and help them kind of, you know, navigate that process and, and support each other. And it's been so fun with the work that I've done with AMWA to meet some of the, the interns that are just now applying to medical school and are just so excited about being involved with other physicians and what they're learning. And so I know we, we haven't even got you into medical school yet, but I'm, I'm jumping to, <laughs> to what you're doing now. Um, but I'm curious as to how, you know, what you've told me about your, your early life and, and how you started to get into this career, how that impacted your involvement in what you do now with this national society. So uh, I suppose that, at all, let me put it, let me kind of go backwards a little bit that when you don't come from a strong family of physicians and you need to find your way, you have to find other sources. And so I think by getting involved with organizations, for example, and, you know, in college when it was Chicago's for Community Medicine, I recognized that I need to get that additional information from all over. And so following CCM, when I was in uh, medical school at Cornell, I was involved with the, uh, the we had the group called um, Students for Equal Opportunity in Medicine. And I think being involved early with those types of organizations help the one to recognize that you're, there's more to being a physician than being in the exam room, that that's a, a huge part, that relationship is amazing, but that having a larger organization to work with you, it helps to smooth out some of those rough edges. And whether it be for some a group that you're, you're uh, particularly interested in, or whether it be a large medical organization that represents your state or your subspecialty, having some like-minded people around can be really useful. For example, um, getting involved with the American Medical Women's Association, I was involved a little bit in college and, and not college, but in medical school, but not to the extent that I am now. And I think as a faculty member, as a woman faculty member, you, you first, you, you just kind of think when you're young, everything's equal, you'll be fine. All that stuff was all the old days. And then as you start going through, you start realizing, yeah, no, it's not. You know, the pay isn't the same. There's not as much, there's not equity in terms of promotion. Um, and there's just little things that kind of come up. And when you start to bring these up, even within the organizations within your institution, there's a little bit of bias in there. You know, I was always involved with the Women's Advisory Council and the women in medicine groups that are at local group at local institutions. But when when I reached out to larger organizations like AMWA, for example, you start to recognize that it's not just your institution. There's there are other people having similar similar situations in other locations and that there is a strength in numbers. Um, and there's also folks who have been through your situation who can give you advice on what they did right and what they did wrong, you know? So having that kind of support from, from women physicians across the country just made a huge difference in my career. Um, for example, you know, when, when you go up for promotion in academics, you have to have letters of recommendation from people outside of your institution, people that you haven't worked directly with. And I, and I think if you're a researcher, it's 
probably not so difficult. They can look up your research and see what you've done. And you probably presented it if you meet national meetings and things. But when you're a clinician educator like I am, who's not very research oriented, like how do you get promoted? How do, you know, how do people across the country know about your work? So it, it caused a bit of, you know, angst, I guess, within, within me. But being involved with AMWA helped to give me that, uh, that visibility. AMWA is a group of, of multi-specialty women physicians. And as you mentioned, people in residence and training and medical students and, and pre-meds and stuff. And so having, you know, having that visibility, presenting at that national meeting, and then being invited to give talks at different locations and working with the medical students to, to be their mentors and with some of the junior faculty to create abstracts and posters and writings and little grants and stuff. It was amazing how it just kind of like took off. So I, I'm very appreciative of the, the women who have gone before me who really have laid the groundwork and made it possible for me to be successful, but also for those folks who are kind of in the trenches with us now, you know, still still doing the work, still trying to to make our our lives, make our careers successful. I think that's that time when you're trying to find your place in the world, as you said, kind of be visible and and share the presentation, share the gifts, share all the, the knowledge that you have. There's some places it's, as you said, it's just, there's a pipeline in that way, mm -hmm. but not others. So for physicians mm -hmm. who maybe are in private practice, but want to have more of a role, uh, a national society can be really helpful for that. And that's what happened with me um, as I became more involved with the American College of Physicians and then subsequently AMWA. And it's really not been until recently that I've been at an academic center where I've got to think about that, that promotion and what do I have to do for that? So I, I recognize that as an opportunity for folks to really shine and to do that in a way that's separate from what they are doing locally. Absolutely. And, and I think, you know, the advocacy work with, with what you've been doing in terms of the ACP as well as with AMWA and everything, advocacy work helps you to get a better understanding of the way your community works. Um, and, and you know, what I tell my patients, I'm involved with a group called Vote ER, V-O-T-E-R, um, that encourages physicians to talk about voting in the exam room. And the idea is not to tell people who to vote for. That's not the point. It's just that they have to understand that what they do in that polling booth, what they do in, when they vote impacts what I can do with them in the exam room. And so many times they don't really get that. It seems like it's so far away. It's, you know, they're only one person. So I, I really appreciate the fact that there are organizations and groups around that are pushing us as physicians, as leaders within our communities, as leaders within our healthcare centers to bring about that, that thought process for our patients that voting is really essential to how things work. Um, and whether you wanna advocate about a specific area, it's more about just making sure that people recognize that that voice that they have is gonna make a huge difference on what we can do in the exam room and, and really kind of encouraging them and pushing them to get involved. Even just by just voting, that's, you don't have to, 
you don't have to be on a big committee. You don't have to write letters to the editor. Just get your get your vote, your ballot in the box, and at least do that one quick thing. Yeah, I like to talk about the like big A advocacy and small A advocacy is, is how I think about it is that you can be an advocate for one person that's yourself and and that I think about that in doing things that support yourself and your well-being. And I love how you're talking about this advocacy just with this one-on-one -on -one conversation with someone else. We do that all the time in the exam room and and the impact that we can have in someone's life and and helping them see all their options and their opportunities, I think so important. And that feels sometimes maybe a little bit more doable than the, mm -hmm. you know, capital A advocacy, like you're going to Washington and you're going to talk with your Senator and, but all of those aspects of that are so important and they're all needed along the way. Um, you can't kind of uh, talk to the world unless you, you're, you know, it in your heart and you're talking to someone else, you know, in those smaller groups as well. I love that idea, the big A and the little A, you know, because sometimes we only think about the big A and it just seems too overwhelming and what can we really do and our voice is so small, but with the little A, you make that, you make those little changes all along. I like that. I'm going to use that. Use it. I, I don't know. I might've borrowed it from someone, but I've used it so long. That's I can't remember it, but <laughs> I have. So, and, and that makes me think, you know, our name of our podcast is the Reset MD Podcast. And I think the, you know, taking kind of ideas and things that have worked for you and, and kind of carry them throughout your career. I, I know just from change of location, you've had some resets mm -hmm. um, as you've uh, transitioned your practice and, and the role that you have from Indiana now to Georgia and all the places and around before then. Um, but I wonder if there have been other resets that have been, you know, really helpful for you that you might want to share with some of the listeners sort of as pearls of, uh, of information or wisdom that could be helpful for them. Oh, sure. I think back to a time when I was in, in, in a role as associate program director in upstate New York. I loved it. It was great. At the same time, I had been doing the position for about five years and realized that I was not as happy doing it anymore. And little things would just start to irritate you, you know, piss you off a little bit. And it was a really hard decision to step away from that position because there are so many aspects of the job that I really enjoyed. But I, I think it's so useful to kind of recognize in yourself that something is bugging you. And I think most of us should try to give, give ourselves a five-year kind of timeline. And at five years, really do a deep check-in. Are you really still happy doing what you're doing? Is there something else that you could do that would make it better? Is it really necessary for you to stay in this position or consider moving out? And, and when you do that, it's not so much that you're giving up and that's what it feels like initially but you're actually creating a position for somebody else because when you move over, somebody else can kind of move in. And so it, that was probably my first kind of big reset that was not, not instigated by a move, you know? Um, but it was, a, it was a good thing. It, and it took me probably a year to kind of make that decision, but it, 
it was nice to have other things to be able to go to, which is great. Um, and sometimes opportunities fall into your lap that you didn't anticipate. So it was nice to have other things to consider. But I, I really think you have to kind of stop and listen to yourself and say, you know, this isn't giving me the same amount of joy as it used to. And it doesn't necessarily mean that the position is bad or the people are. It's just that you've developed and now you need to think about moving over and developing in a different sphere. Um, and I think folks in business are much better at this than folks in medicine. We've spent so much time getting to this point. We don't feel like we should be able to change when in actuality, yeah, you know, a business resume, people are moving different places all the time. In medicine, we feel like we got to just, you know, it took so long to get her. I'm just going to stick. Um, so that, that was probably me, one of my first kind of big resets that did a lot of kind of soul searching to kind of get there. I love that idea of, of intentionally kind of thinking about where, where you are now, where you want to be and, and having that awareness, as you said, it's kind of like, I wasn't unhappy, but I just wasn't as happy. And there were things that mm -hmm. just started to kind of, Hmm, let me think about that a little bit more and, and really making that intentional to be able to say, okay, every five years, I'm going to you know, take a week off and, and see where I am in the world. What do I, what am I excited about? What am I passionate about? How do I keep doing some of that? And I actually read something recently talking about mid-career physicians where they are, you know, doing the same thing for a long time. It gets, it gets like, not really, maybe the word is boring, but it gets, you know, mm -hmm. where it's not as exciting and you're looking for a new challenge and you want to do something different. And I agree. I think that the business world, they're, they're much better at doing that. We often too, I think, start adding stuff on. It's like we, we kind of get a role. We're not sure we want to give that up. So we add something else to it and we keep adding. And, uh, and then that gets us into our, my favorite uh, thing to talk about is that overwhelm and feeling burned out and how to, how to kind of refocus back to your priorities. But it sounds like that you were able to recognize that make some changes, uh, and then move on to something that maybe was a little bit more uh, intriguing for you at that time. And as a general internist, I think we are also in a fairly unique position because, because I remember there was a time when one of my chairs said, you know, Teresa, in order to be, you know, good in academics, you need to pick one thing. And I just kind of looked at him like, seriously? You know, this is why I do general medicine is because I love the idea that I never know what's behind the door. You could walk in and it's a pan hypo pit that you're taking care of. The next one, it's a sore knee. And then the next one, it's a, you know, hemoglobin A1C of 15. And, and you never know when you open the door, is it, is it hemoglobin A1C because they lost their health insurance and they couldn't get the medications or they just got into a big fight with their partner and they got kicked out and so their medications got lost or, you know, so there's so many different things that kind of come into play. And so I'm, I'm grateful that I chose doing general internal medicine because of the breath, the breath and depth that it gives us. And so it's, it's hard to get bored, but you'll sometimes need a change of scenery and and that's okay you know and luckily as a physician golly we have so many different options I've had folks that have you know gone to clinical half time and do medical writing the other half time or do administration um, or go from doing you know, totally outpatient medicine to doing outpatient but doing a home care 
I mean, so many different ways that we can be productive. And most recently, I made a change down here to Athens and where I'm just teaching. And I, I shouldn't say just, I hate that word just, but what a fabulous option this has been. I'm, I'm learning things again <laughs> that now makes sense, you know, that teaching the medical students and working with the residents and all, I mean, in a very direct hands-on kind of way, it's like, now I remember why I give the medications that I do for heart failure, because I'm learning the pathophysiology of how the heart works. And it's like, oh, duh, that's why that does that. Um, but just the idea that I could pivot from being mostly clinical to being mostly teaching. I mean, that's, that's, that's huge. And as, which is not solely typical in this position, they actually pay you to teach. Most of the time, the teaching is an afterthought. It's a, while you're seeing patients, we'll just throw a student in with you and you never get anything extra for it. And you're, you know, it impacts your salary because your productivity goes down because you're teaching. But in this situation, um, and by the way, we're still looking for clinician educators. So I'll just throw that out there. <laughs> but in this situation, I mean, you really have the time to kind of think about how to put that lecture together, how to do that talk, how to bring the student, you know, to a better understanding of, of clinical care. It, it's phenomenal. I mean, what an amazing, amazing um, career opportunities we've had. I never would have anticipated any of this, but I, I'm forever grateful that I had the opportunity. And I think that's such uh, a counter and such a great example to what some physicians feel that they're kind of stuck in what they're doing. They can't do anything else. They can't see another option. Um, and I think when you are really burned out, you feel like you, you don't have another option. You can't, you can't see this, you don't know it. And so being able to have conversations with other physicians like this and say, can you imagine that this is a great job? Could you imagine doing this? We didn't know it was out there. And I love the idea of thinking that as an internist, we have so many different options that we can do. And I'm hoping someone who's listening will say, gosh, I never thought about it that way. Um, there is, there is, that's true. There's lots of things that we can do and still use the skills that we've used as physicians, as teachers, um, as mentors, and take that a different way, have that reset. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you, you have such a opportunity because there are so few of us around, you know, I mean, you can't just decide, Oh, let me just switch careers and jump right into this. So the background that you have has set up this amazing foundation that you can use to go in a variety of different ways. But that, that's also, I think, being involved with medical organizations like AMWA and ACP and others have helped me to really understand because it gave me the opportunity to work with folks. You know, one of the women that I work, that I work with in AMWA, Sarah Lynn Mark, was, is an internist, but she also was in the White House and she also has been helping, she helped in the past with NASA. Um, and so her area of expertise is, is incredibly broad, but it, it, just working alongside her, I thought, wow, you know, I hadn't thought about, you could do, you could do, you know, policy. And I mean, when those, the two women astronauts were up in space and they couldn't both go out on the walk together because they didn't make the suits for women. 
<laughs> and so the whole walk had to be scuttled and you know redone another time she said you know Sarah, Dr. Mark said, you know, we actually wrote about that back in 2014, that you can't just take a man's suit and, you know, do a few little stitches and make it a women's suit. There are different things about it. And so when, you know, when she brought that up, it's like, oh my goodness, you know, there's so many different ways that we can have an impact, even, even, you know, to how to walk in space. It was phenomenal. That is such an interesting story. And I'm thinking about how we you know, say that uh, children are not just uh, small adults, they, they're different. Uh, and we see, you know, there's different aspects of gender and whether it's just the size of their bodies versus all the other things that, that are different. I'm curious mm -hmm. if you'd be interested in talking a little bit more about AMWA. We've talked about it as American Medical Women's Association, but there are male members. There are uh, uh, physicians who are, as it's commonly called he for she, who really are um, interested in advancing the role of women in healthcare in, as physicians. So tell us a little bit about it for those who may not be familiar with the organization. Sure. Oh, thank you for the opportunity. I mean, Emma started in 1915. Um, Bertha Van Hoover, who I was a uh, OBGYN, who back in those times, when you got out of medical school, you basically had to kind of do a residency, but it's more of an apprenticeship. And so you had to find a position that would allow you to work with them. That wasn't so easy back in 1915. There weren't that many guys that were willing to take you. So part of the reason why AMWA got together was to allow other women physicians to have opportunities to work with women physicians and build their, and learn their craft and really build their careers. So that was kind of the reason why I got started. It also kind of really took off um, during during the world wars when they needed physicians to help, but they did not allow women physicians. Mm -hmm. So the women physicians who wanted to help out, they actually, a couple of them left and went to France and actually worked within the French um, system to give care. And because of that, then they were able to kind of come back to the U.S. and and increase the participation within AMWA, but also to advocate and eventually succeed in obtaining positions within the, the military for women physicians. So it, it's amazing where, where they saw a roadblock and they just said, forget this, we're, we're just gonna go around it, you know, to make it work. And then along the way, AMWA has always been very supportive of women making medicine their career, but at the same time, they realize you, you can't just be a woman physician and not think about women's health care. Because especially early on, it was about the only things that we could treat were women and children. Um, so consequently, there was a lot of effort put forth into the development of, of um, interest in women's health and in children and public health issues and things. So definitely they, they have been incredibly proactive all along the way. In the mid-1990s, to kind of jumping forth a bit, there was a big push to, to better understand women's health. Women's health, not just from an OBGYN perspective, but from an overall. So it's about that time that Society of Women's Health Research kind of got together and said, you know, most of the, the work that you're doing is on men and it's not working when you give that same medication to a woman, 
and medications are having to get pulled off the market. So the Society of Women's Health and AMWA kind of work together to really advocate for increasing participation of women in clinical research as participants and participating in the trials so that we could see how the medications could work. And along with that, we started to recognize the differences between how certain disease processes work in men and women. And so they created a women's health curriculum that was instituted eventually at almost every medical school across the country in the mid 1990s, really thinking about women's health from a more whole body perspective, not just the bikini area. And that's when things really started coming out about the differences between heart disease and lung disease and cancer, and I mean, everything. And, and as it has progressed, we have definitely been very proactive in the field of sex and gender and, and getting more research into what makes a difference to the point where you know, we're advocating for the basic science research. You know, it does your basic science research, was that done in little boy mice or little girl mice and does it make a difference? Who knows? If we don't know the data, we don't know if it makes a difference or not. So let's kind of start at the bare basics because every cell has a sex and we need to know what the, what the implications are. So along the way, Emma has always been very proactive in, in all of those areas. Probably the other um, more decisive kind of advocacy work has been on reproductive health. You know, I think especially as a woman physician, you recognize if you don't have control over your reproductive health, there's a lot of things that are going to kind of get in the way, whether that being having to, you know, delay menses for a few days because you have a big surgical case coming up, you know, or whether it be the delaying of your child, your, your, your uh, pregnancies because of the training that you're doing um, or any one of those things. We recognize that for women having control over reproductive health has a huge impact on her career, on her family, on her community, on her overall health and well-being. So yes, AMWA has been very proactive on issues result revolving around reproductive health. And in the mid-1970s, when the abortion discussion was going on, we probably lost a lot of members because of our stance on pro-choice. And as that's coming around again, we may or may not lose some folks because of that again, but we recognize that in order to take care of your patients and your community, you also have to be able to take care of yourself. And appropriate reproductive health is an, is an integral part of every woman's life, regardless of their age. So our goal, we're, we're again taking a stance on, on reproductive rights and again taking a, chan, a, a stance on, on the need for women to have choice. It's such an important conversation to have right now, because as you said, it's, it's another turning point in our, our country and in our culture and um, being able to have that voice as a woman, uh, as a woman physician is really important. It comes back to that, that sense of advocacy and where to have those conversations to support that. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we just, today and tomorrow, Anwa has been involved with the roundtable discussion at the White House for um, reproductive rights. And so I'm grateful that they have reached out to us to, to give them some additional information. And, you know, it's probably another whole conversation or a whole nother podcast. But I think for folks who aren't involved in medicine, they don't understand the implications. Um, one of the comments that just came out 
in the in these conversations recently was you know an ectopic pregnancy isn't when you fix that it's not an abortion it's the fact that the placement of that fetus was abnormal and if you don't take care of it it's going to kill the woman you're not having an abortion you're 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 fixing a problem that's you can't take that little egg from the fallopian tube and put it into the uterus that like you can't do that um but it's also you know the effects that are going to occur and that have already been occurring where a woman is having a you know a, a miscarriage and the physician can't go in and do the dnc because of the concern that somebody might misconstrue this as you know attempting an abortion i mean oh my goodness we women are going to die and and that's not fair you know that's not fair i mean women died in childbirth for so many years and we're finally getting to a point where it's better let's not let's not go backwards let's not go backwards i think that says a lot says a lot yeah sorry I, it's hard to it's hard to not discuss it these days especially as you know so many women are kind of coming up and i don't think that they've they weren't there when you had hospital wards of women who were dying from sepsis because of botched abortions um and it's not it's not always a choice of of yours to have sex or not um and we really have to work on you know if somebody needs appropriate access then they should be able to attain it um whether that be access for birth control whether that be access for reproductive health i mean the world kind of runs on on women being able to do their jobs being able to take care of their families and when we get legislated over when we get told what to do yeah not such a good thing okay sorry i'm getting off my soapbox <laughs> no no i think these are such again such important conversations to have and thank you for for sharing that i will i will change gears just a little bit as sure. we finish up i um i like to do a couple little rapid fire questions at the end and uh and let uh listeners know some surprising things maybe about you uh what uh what are you reading right now Oh, I just finished a book by Dennis. Um, his last name is like Mukherjee. He is a OBGYN and it's called The Power of Women. And I didn't really know what to expect. I'd heard it was good, but oh my goodness, it's really all about sexual violence and the implications of sexual violence and why that happens. He's specifically talking about um, what's happened in Nigeria but he also brings in some cases that have happened in the US and it's really fascinating to just see how how rape has been used as a as a war you know war met weapon weapon for war mm -hmm. um and then and how that's used in domestic violence and and why and you know he says that it's probably because women in so many parts of the world and even in the US have been seen as kind of second class citizens and that this you know is just not really that big of a deal mm -hmm. um, and and just recently in the US we had a um, elected official say you know if a woman's getting raped she should just lay back and enjoy it what 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 about rape isn't violence that that's that's violence 
So you don't just lay back and enjoy it. Oh, if you're gonna get shot with the gun, just lay back and enjoy it. Um, yeah, so his book is so powerful. The Power of Women, it is incredible. He, I think he, he won a Nobel Peace Prize um, for his work on, on violence against women, but it is really phenomenal. That um, we'll, we'll link that in our notes, uh, show notes uh, oh, yeah. for the podcast. If, if, if you are interested in looking at that, oh, yeah. it really comes back to what we started this conversation about was equity. And so I, right. I can see again, kind of what you're reading comes back to that, that passion for advocacy for you as well. And Absolutely. then what's on your bucket list that you haven't done yet that you'd like to share? Do you have a bucket <laughs> list? <laughs> oh, I think everybody does. You know, okay, this is going to sound great. So one of the things on my bucket list would be to be an elected official. But I don't know that I'm going to do that or not. It's really tough because it, I thought I seriously thought about it in the past. And, and running for office in some ways could be very powerful. And in other ways, it could be very difficult because... You don't always get put on to the right the committees that you're really interested in. You have to advocate for things that, that's not really in your wheelhouse. So at this point, I've kind of made the decision to be more in the background and do as much advocacy work as I can and to be very supportive of those that do run for office. But, you know, that would have been fun. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for talking with us today. I have uh, learned more about you, my friend, and I'm so glad to share that with, uh, with all the folks that are listening. And I will put the information um, about some of the things that you share, particularly about AMWA and some of the programming there and the history and, and also um, the book. And if you um, uh, are still looking for folks to come down to, to help you with the role that you have at, the, at Augusta University, University of Georgia in Athens, I will be happy uh, to pass along. Oh, sure, you. sure. I, I will happy that you can post that job description because, you know, it, it's been a fabulous place to work. So come on down. Thank you All so right. much. Have I a good evening. So All righty. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening in on this conversation at Reset MD. If you'd like to reach out to us and continue the conversation for well-being, email us at resetmdpodcast at gmail.com.